I invite you to turn once again to the book of Galatians. Galatians 4, verses 21 through 31. So if you would stand with me, please. And please give attention to the reading of God's Word. God's Word that is food for us, that is life. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless us from your word this morning, that you would help us to see here a lesson for us from the Old Testament transferred to the New. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we might see Jesus. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Sometimes we have a misapprehension of things, and we need to be reminded. I was thinking about that this week, and one of my favorite scenes from an old movie, you may remember it even if you haven't seen the movie, two people are sitting around a dinner table, and a man looks thoughtfully and he says, oh, I remember it well. We ate at nine, and his wife says, no, it was at eight. He said, I was on time. She said, no, you were late. And he says, ah, yes, I remember it well. We dined with friends. No, we ate alone. <laughs> and so on it goes. You, you may remember that scene. And how the gentleman remembers it so well, but so wrongly. That's sort of a funny example of what Paul is doing to the Judaizers this morning in our text. They had thought back wistfully to the story of Abraham and Hagar and Sarah, and they had remembered it so well. And Paul says, no, you really didn't. You missed, quite frankly, the entire point of that scripture. 
Let me explain it to you. And so, this morning, we're going to see, first, an old story. A story that is well known to us. If you've been in the church since childhood, this is real ordinary fodder for Sunday school. You've probably heard this story many, many times. To the Galatians, it would have been familiar because it would have been the topic that was on the lips very often of the Judaizers. Of course, to Jews, this would be a well-worn passage in the Scriptures. Father Abraham and his wives. So we'll look at the old story. But then we're going to see Paul put a new twist on the old story to explain things for us. First the old story, and then a new twist. And then finally, Paul is going to do what pastors normally do with their congregations. We've talked a bit about Paul being a pastor and having a pastor's heart. He's going to apply that to their lives. And he's going to say to them, use what you learned. I've explained it to you. Now put it into practice. So let us then look first and see the old story that Paul has here At the beginning of our text, verse 21, he says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. And so the first thing that Paul does is he lays out this background for a lesson. He's about to give them a lesson from Scripture, and so he describes it to them. This should be very familiar to those of us who are in the church. This is how we obtain teaching in the church. There's a lesson to be had from the Scriptures, and we rehearse what the story is. And you know the story well. Abraham is married to a woman named Sarah. And Sarah is barren. She doesn't have children. And so what happens is, Sarah gets the idea that Abraham is all too willing to go along with. She says, well, I have this maidservant, this handmaid, this slave. Perhaps we can obtain children through her. And Hagar gives birth to a son named Ishmael. And if you remember back to that text in Genesis, that Ishmael was Abraham's pride and joy. Don't skip forward to today where we think of the enmity between the children of Isaac and the children of Ishmael. Back then, Abraham doted on Ishmael. You may recall that at the point in the Scriptures where God makes clear that Ishmael is not to stay in his house... Abraham breaks out in a father's cry. Oh, that you would bless Ishmael. Ishmael was his pride and joy. Also, this is a story that would have been the pride and joy of the Judaizers. They would have loved this story. Why? Because they were the true children. They were descended from Isaac. The Galatians, of course, weren't. They were the special people. They were the ones that were the true children of Abraham, as identified by circumcision. And so the story would go, well, don't you want to be true children of Abraham? If you want to be true children of Abraham, you have to be like us. You have to become Jews first, before you can be children of Abraham. We've seen this over and over again as we've looked through Galatians. The Ishmaelites were the representation of, of the Gentiles to the Jew. You would think that perhaps there would be Jews and then they would treat the Ishmaelites different as sort of distant cousins and then, of course, all of the Gentiles. But no, 
The Jews became so exclusive, and the early Christians, the Judaizers, became so exclusive that they lumped the Ishmaelites in with everyone. The Chinese, the Gauls, the Germans, it doesn't matter. They're all, they're all the same. They're all not God's people. They're all not as good as we are. This is a story that they would have rehearsed often to the Galatians. And so Paul says, you need to think about this story for a minute here. He sets up his motives for going through this background. Look, he says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? He, he says, I want you to engage me here. He's ending this section of doctrinal teaching, and he says, I want you to tell me something. And he describes for us a bit of what the the situation for the Galatians was and how he perceived it. Notice what he says. He says, you who desire to be under the law. You see, Paul has been saying that to be under the law is death. To be under the law is sin. To be under the law is to be apart from the promise. And this is a final pastor's warning here in this section saying, listen. You who desire to play in the midst of traffic, let me tell you, have you really thought about that? Do you really think that's a good idea? Pastors do this with their congregations. You do it with your children as well, don't you? Your children want to do something and you say, do you really think that's a good idea? Have you thought this through? And... Ironically, as our children get older, we tend to say that more often, don't we? Because the decisions that are made have greater consequences. So we say that more often as they choose a college, think about getting married, think about buying a house. We want to make sure they've thought through the implications of what they're doing. And so the question then comes to us as Christians. Is this our attitude with others in the church that we see perhaps on the brink of error? Do we have an attitude of intervention, of care, of give this a second thought? Or do we stand by waiting and saying, waiting to see what's going to happen here? (laughs) Waiting for the fall. There are some that do that. Paul gives us an example of how we are to act. It's to engage. It's to show concern. And he says... Listen. Do you listen to the law? Now, there's irony here. He says, you who desire to be under the law, do you listen to the law? The word law in the scripture has several meanings because it's used in different ways. The way Paul's been using it is as a system of salvation by merit and works. But the law was also shorthand for the first five books of the Bible, the books written by Moses. We use the same kind of shorthand, don't we? We use the Pentateuch. Even if we don't use fancy words like Pentateuch, we use it with Old Testament and New Testament, don't we? It's shorthand for a section of the Bible. And so Paul says, you want to be under the law so bad, let's take a look at what the law says. Turn with me, he might say, to the book of Genesis. And let's see what's going on here. The other thing that you need to realize is when Paul says to them, Listen, it means more than hear the words I'm saying. It means listen to me. 
understand what I'm saying, and if you have questions, ask them, and then act upon it. Because, you see, the Bible doesn't know anything of hearing and listening that then goes in one ear and out the other. Isn't that frustrating when someone does that to us? When you're at work and you say something, and you talk about something that needs to be done for about 15 minutes, and then you say, okay, so we're going to do, and you get a blank stare. Wives know this very well, right? Because one of the great skills of a husband is learning how to pay rapt attention while doing two or three other things. And the wife always catches the husband with, now what did I just say? You weren't really listening. Children do it to parents. And yes, wives do do it to husbands as well. But you see, the Bible doesn't know anything of that. Paul says, listen, hear me, obey what the law has to say. The classic example of that is in Deuteronomy 6. The the classic rallying cry of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. This is what Paul is saying. And so Paul gives this background to a lesson that he's going to give. And he says, I want to tell you what the real difference is between Ishmael and Isaac. He says, don't you remember that there were two sons? But remember that one was the son of a slave woman and one was the son of a free man, a free woman. Immediately we're struck with a difference. To be a slave is not to be free, by definition. To be free is not to be a slave, by definition. They had completely different rights under the law. We can even think back to our own nation's history and think of things that slaves just simply could not do, were not permitted to do by the law. Even in this day, it would be obvious that, for example, a slave could not inherit property. A free son would do that. A slave was property. He wouldn't inherit property. And so there's an immediate difference here between Ishmael and Isaac. Now, so far, the Judaizers are shaking their heads. Yeah, of course, right. And then he says, how the one was born according to the flesh, while the other was born through promise. Now, Paul's doing something very interesting here. He's not just setting up what we see as sort of a classic biblical distinction between flesh and spirit. He's going to do that later in chapters 5 and 6. We see that throughout the New Testament. He's actually getting right at the heart of the Judaizers' argument. Because what was the Judaizers' argument? Flesh counts. We're the children of Abraham. Oh, by the way, the flesh of circumcision counts. Their whole argument was flesh, 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 flesh. Don't worry about the promise. Do, 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 do. And Paul says, have you really listened to the law? You know who the one of the flesh was? The slave. Now the other hand, the other shoe drops. Now quizzical looks are coming from the Judaizers. What? See, the difference between Ishmael and Isaac was not just that one was free and one was a slave. There was a more substantive difference. Ishmael's birth was the result 
of a distrust of a promise of God. It was what J.I. Packer calls amateur providence. Abraham and Sarah trying to give God a helping hand. Give a step stool to God so he could reach that thing on the top shelf. We know this is really hard, Lord. You want us to have descendants and Sarah's so old, so we're going to help you out. You see, this is the practical implication of that oh-so-sophisticated theology, God helps those who help themselves. This is a prime example of it right here. Hagar and Ishmael. And Paul says that this is something that we need to realize applies to us today. Notice the language that he used. He says, one was, was born according to the flesh. Now, the word that Paul uses here for was born, he uses in a perfect tense. And I may have described this to you before, but basically, you use the perfect tense when something happens in the past that has present ramifications or implications. We might use it when we say, I was saved. Something that happened in the past that affects me right now, this very second that I'm standing here speaking to you. And so Paul says, this is an ongoing thing. You see, to distrust the promise of God is to be according to the flesh. You might imagine there's some Judaizers and some faithful Galatian students loosening their ties, getting a bit uncomfortable. Because Paul has just been saying, if you follow this train of thought, you are not following the promise of God. And so now he's just told them, They're according to the flesh, and they're slaves, but also they're following in the footsteps of Ishmael and Hagar. Contrast that with Isaac, who is born through the promise. Now, notice there's a difference here. It's according to the flesh, but through the promise. It's not just that he's born according to the promise. The promise gives Isaac birth. There is a sense in which we can say the birth of Isaac is a supernatural event. It is divine intervention. It's not that Isaac is the born of a virgin, as our Lord was, but Isaac's birth is a direct result of the Lord counteracting all that anyone might think of, all expectations. Sarah was already past the age of bearing children. A medical doctor would sign off on that. It would have been obvious. And yet here comes Isaac, born according to the promise. It tells us, it reminds us that God does not forget his promises. You see, Abraham and Sarah thought he had. And so they went out and struck out on their own. You may be tempted today to forget God's promises. Because it doesn't look like they're ever going to be answered. It doesn't look like there's any hope for your marriage, or your family, or your finances, or a broken relationship. But God remembers his promises. Even when everything that we see shows us that he's forgotten. We trust in the Lord. And that's an opportunity for us to enter in by faith. Because Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 11, that great roll call of faith that describes Moses and Abraham 
at all of these others, Samson, Jephthah, you know who else it describes? Sarah. It says that Sarah, through faith, conceived a child. You see, Sarah had to be reminded of the promise. But once she was reminded, she took hold of it and never let go. And the result was Isaac. This is the old story that we all know so well. And then Paul gives it here in verse 24 a new twist. And it really is a twist. He does something that we don't see anywhere else in the Scripture. And it, it makes it, you know, it's an intimidating week when you flip through a few commentaries and everyone says, this is perhaps the most difficult passage in all of the New Testament. Thanks. But it really is, because what does it mean here? He says, now, this may be interpreted allegorically. And you say, I've never heard that before. You're right. It's nowhere else in the Bible. These women are two covenants. Okay. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Wait a minute, Paul. You just said she's a covenant. Now she's a mountain? Paul, make up your mind. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. Well, thank you for the geography lesson, Paul. What else? She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Wait a minute, now she's a city? What is she? Is she a covenant? Is she a mountain or is she a city? For she is in slavery with her children. Huh? But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Now there's another lady here. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. What? Paul, do you read your Old Testament? Women who don't have children mourn. (laughs) They tear out their hair. They plead with God. They pray so hard, other people see them and think they're drunk. Hannah, at the beginning of 1 Samuel. What are you doing, Paul? For the children of the desolate one will be more than of those of the one who has a husband. What? The children of the one who doesn't have children will be more than the one who has a husband? What's going on here? Well, let's try and unpack this a bit. And hopefully, at the end of it, we'll have a good idea in seeing that these women are covenants, and they are mountains, and they are cities. And they all tie together to help us to understand the big picture of what Paul is saying. So first, let's see, who really is this Hagar? It's as if Paul might say, in a conference with the Galatians, with the Judaizers looking on, saying, will the real Hagar please stand up? And the answer surprises. First, we see Paul's method of interpretation here. He says, now, this passage we're talking about in Genesis, let me interpret it for you allegorically. Now, what does that mean? Many of you may be familiar with allegory. Children, you're watching and going through an allegory right now, aren't you? What's it called? Pilgrim's Progress, right? That is an allegory. It even begins, Bunyan saying, now, I was asleep and I dreamt. And it was like this. Typically, when we think of allegory, we think of something being a picture of something else. And that's really what's going on here. Now, one thing that I want you to get out of your mind that Paul's not doing is a typical definition of allegory that we may have in Bible circles. Allegory was a method of interpretation early in the church, and it has many adherents today, that basically says, we don't really know what the Bible says. And what the Bible says isn't really that important. 
we have to get at the secret meaning of what the Bible says. And so if we see Jesus, for example, at the wedding of Cana, it's not really Jesus going to a wedding. It's really Jesus is God, and the wine is the Holy Spirit, and the, the guests are this, and the bride is that, and this is what this means. And really, the wedding doesn't matter at all. And we should rightly scratch our heads and go, no. There was a wedding. There are things we can learn from. The Lord has recorded it that way for a reason. If he wanted to say something conceptually, he would do it. He does it all throughout the Bible. So that's not what we're talking about. But there is something else in the Bible called typology. We see it all the time. Things that we see by shadow in the Old Testament are clear in the New. I'll give you just a couple of examples that will make it obvious. The Israelites built a tabernacle. Was that an end in itself? No. It was a shadow of things to come. The Israelites built a temple. Was that an end in itself? No, it was to picture for us the true temple, the Lord Jesus Christ. The sacrificial system was designed to give us an example, a shadow of what the sacrifice of the cross would be. God gives us examples. And that's what he's doing here. Paul says, let me take this example of what happened in Abraham's life and apply it to what we've been talking about. Now, why would Paul use this text? It's hard He has to use this allegory. You know, why go through all the trouble, Paul? Can't you just say it plainly? And I think there are two things that point out to us why he used this. Do you notice, especially children, one of the things that is not found in this text? Does anybody see the name Isaac? Does anybody see the name Abraham? Does anyone even see the name Sarah? No. Paul leaves it completely out. Why does he do that? Well, I think the best answer is the Galatians, these people who did not grow up in Jerusalem, who did not grow up on the Torah, they knew this story backwards and forwards. They knew how to connect the dots because this was the talking points of the Judaizers. This was what came up every single time. We've joked about it in the past. We all have this, I have my talking points. I'm starting to get to the point where I begin a sentence and you all can, re- can finish it. And that's a good thing. It's the same here for the Judaizers. They would have drilled and drilled and drilled this into the Galatians. So Paul sees this. It's their favorite passage. It's their piece de resistance. It is the final nail in the coffin of Paul. And he says, let me tell you what this really means. And he turns it completely on its head, and gives the proper biblical interpretation. This is something that he does. Now, he also does this in contradiction to ordinary Judaism. You know, we see things out in the world today, and we say, that's just how people talk. That's the way Americans see things. This is how Jews saw things. Story of Abraham, okay. Isaac, that's me. Ishmael, that's you. Free, that's me. Freed by the law. I'm freed by working in the law. Slave, that's you. You're outside. That would have been just second nature. And so what Paul says is, no, let me explain something to you. You know who Hagar is? She's Mount Sinai. Now that would immediately perk up an interest. What does that mean? 
Now, Paul's using representative language here. We don't want to imagine that, like some sort of odd computer program, Hagar morphed into a big mountain. He says she is Mount Sinai. And just as an aside here, another good example of that is when our Lord says, this is my body. He's using representative language. It's actually the exact same word for it's. So just as Hagar's not a mountain, actually, communion is not the actual body of our Lord. So he says, this is who Hagar is. She is Mount Sinai. Now that would draw up imageries of the law because that's what happened on Mount Sinai, the giving of the commandments. But see, Paul doesn't end there because he's not saying that Sarah is Mount Sinai, which is what they would have expected. He says Hagar is. And then he throws in a real kicker. Remember that little geography lesson we read? He says, now remember, Mount Sinai, that's over in Arabia. And they would say, wait a minute. We're supposed to associate Sinai with the Promised Land. We're supposed to associate Sinai with Jerusalem. We're supposed to associate Sinai with us, the good guys. That's what the Judaizers would say. And Paul says, remember, it's out in Arabia. It's outside God's promised land. It's outside Jerusalem. And then he says, and this corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Now there's a real kicker. Now they're in a real huff. Wait a minute. You said that Hagar is like our favorite mountain where our favorite stories take place. And now you're saying it's like us in Jerusalem? We come from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital of the universe. That's where the temple is. And he says, well... Hagar is Jerusalem. Corresponds to present Jerusalem. Now, what does he mean by this? Is Hagar a place? Is she an actual city? She couldn't morph into a mountain, so she morphs into a city? No, he says that she is corresponding to the present Jerusalem. And by that, he means this whole system that had been built up decade after decade century after century, to it got to such a point where the Lord reveals His grace in His Son and His death on the cross, and they still can't recognize that that's not enough. They can't let go of it. They still want that ceremonial system. They still want the law. They want to be, as He said in verse 21, under the law. Now, it's interesting here that Paul does something that you really can't see in the English. And it's not, you don't need to be a Greek scholar to see this, but I think it's interesting. You remember he's used the word Jerusalem a couple of other times in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 when he describes when he went back and forth to Jerusalem? Well, when you have Hebrew words and you put them in another language, you, you could do them different ways. For example, those of you that are familiar with German, the Germans will just take English words and make them German words. Or they'll take multiple English words and stick them all together and make one big, really long German word, right? Latin kind of does that too. There's the Vatican makes up new words, and the word for computer is the word for thing that makes many computations very fast, okay? Instead of just computer. Well, Hebrew is like that too. And you can just take a word and bring it in like baptism for us in English, like the name Isaac. And that's what happens here. Jerusalem is just carried right over from the Hebrew. 
The interesting thing is that Paul doesn't do that. The other places he describes Jerusalem. He universalizes Jerusalem. He Greekizes it, if that's a word. Here, he's really drawing a sharp distinction between one system that was temporary and is faded and was exclusive and now the universal appeal of the gospel. He does it just by using a word that would not have been lost on the original hearers. So this is what he does. And he says, listen, Hagar, not only is she Mount Sinai, not only is she present Jerusalem, remember, she's in bondage. And she bears children in slavery. Because she's a slave, her children are slaves. Now, this would be a huge shock for the Jews and for the Judaizers. It would be the equivalent of calling an Israeli an Arab today. People are not happy right now. They've just been called. There's very few insults that could be worse than that. I imagine that probably in some of the taverns in Israel, you're a son of Hagar would probably be a fighting words. And Paul says this to them. Now, why does he do this? It's because he's saying, you have bought into this system of bondage and slavery. Now, why would Paul tell that to the Galatians? And why would we spend our time here this morning? Why not just skip over this as some interesting curiosity that causes Fred to read a lot of commentaries? This is the reason. When we make Christianity a series of do's and don'ts, we are of Hagar and in bondage. Because you see, Judaism itself is not evil or bondage. Abraham was a Jew. David was a Jew. The Old Testament is good. But you see, they took what God had given to them in a relationship by grace throughout the Old Testament and had made it a series of do's and don'ts. If I'm circumcised, I'm okay. If I keep feasts, I'm okay. And you see them whittling away at the Galatians. We've seen it throughout these four chapters. Paul says, if you're thinking about circumcision, you're making a mistake. I'm hearing you might be doing things with feast days and holidays, and making them more important than they should be. I'm afraid, he says, have you lost your mind? Who's bewitched you? You see, that's what they had done. Because people do that. You do that. I do that. We are tempted to simplify our relationship with God to a checklist. But the irony is, by doing that, all we give ourselves is grief and work, bondage, Charles Spurgeon put it this way in his usual colorful way. He said, the law never says thank you. It always says, go on, go on, do more, do more. That's as true today as it was for the Galatians. After Paul has described Hagar, he then says... This is how we find freedom in the promise of God. He's described a horrible situation of bondage. He's really stuck it to the Judaizers. And in verse 26, he says, But the Jerusalem above is free. And now what he's talking about here is not primarily geography. He's not expecting the Galatians to do this. Where's the city? Is this city in the clouds? Is this like an old Flash Gordon movie with cities built in the clouds? No. 
This is not primarily about geography. It's primarily about a community of the new covenant. He is describing the theology of two kingdoms. Being in the world, but not of it. That's what he's describing. And this is a biblical pattern that we have seen throughout the scriptures. We talked about it with the temple. Jerusalem is a pattern for the heavenly city. The author of Hebrews makes that very clear. Now notice what he says. But the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. I've said this to you before. I will say it again. Little words mean things in the Bible. It doesn't say will be free. It doesn't say will be our mother. Paul is saying to the Galatians, right now you possess freedom in the heavenly Jerusalem. Right now. Not next week. Not when you get your act together. Not when you finally read through the Bible in a year. Not when you have finally consistently prayed for two weeks. Right now. It would also be a call to those Galatians who had not professed faith in Jesus Christ and the promise to say that right now is the time to be free. And that's true for you as well. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no better time. Paul would say it this way in another place. Today is the day of salvation. It's not for freedom later. It's freedom now in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Paul goes in and he describes this passage. And it seems so odd. It comes from Isaiah 54. If you have a cross-reference Bible, you'll see that. And you wonder what's going on. Rejoice, O barren one. This doesn't make any sense. But if you go and look at that passage in context, what the Lord is saying to Israel, and what Paul is saying to the Galatians here is, God is in the business of making something out of nothing. Joy from mourning. Freedom from bondage. That's what God does. And just like the barren woman doesn't even have a husband because he's been carried off to captivity because of the promise of God to his people, the church. She will be more fruitful than the one who has a husband. Now notice, it doesn't say, you shall. It says, the Lord will. That the Lord will do these things. This is not something that they do by action. This is the work of the Lord. This is the new twist that Paul puts on this story. So we've seen an old story that we know, and we've seen a new twist, and now Paul, like many preachers, says, let me give you a few points of application here, in conclusion. He says, use what you've learned. Look in verse 28. He says, now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. The first thing that Paul says to these Galatians, and he says it to you today and to me, is don't be surprised by persecution. He says this is a pattern laid out for us in Scripture. Just as Isaac was persecuted by Ishmael, he was mocked. He was abused. He was hated. He was envied. So too, those who are not united by faith with Jesus Christ mock, abuse, ignore those who are the children of God. This is part of being a Christian. Luther, who could be as colorful or more colorful than Spurgeon, put it this way. 
He said, if someone does not want to endure persecution from Ishmael, let him not claim that he is a Christian. This is part and parcel of the Christian life. And it's a result of the differences. Because one is of the flesh and one is of spirit. Paul says, don't be surprised if you're persecuted. And then in verse 30 and 31, he concludes here with a rousing cry to them to remember their freedom. Look at what he says. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. He gives them some common sense. Slaves don't inherit. Don't be a slave. There's no end there. There's no good there. He says, protect yourself and others' freedom. Now, this especially would be a sharp ending to this passage for the Judaizers. Notice what Paul says. He's been talking about Hagar, the bondwoman. And he says, she's like Mount Sinai, the law. She is bondage. She's like the present Jerusalem. He's basically all but said, she's like those guys over there. And what does he say? Cast them out. Cast out the son of the bond. And he quotes the scripture here. He's giving a basic gospel truth to us. That legal bondage cannot coexist with the gospel. You cannot have spiritual freedom where you have bondage to the law. They can't be together. You cannot have peaceful coexistence. You remember that, some of you that are my age or a bit older? You remember that was sort of an entire philosophy we tried to live with for about 40 years? Peacefully coexisting with an empire that was sworn to destroy us and was working all the time to find different ways to attack us on a low level without inciting a big war? The Soviet Union. Some of you that are younger don't even know the Soviet Union. It was called peaceful coexistence. And many of us looked at that and said, that's ridiculous. How do you have peaceful coexistence with your mortal enemy that in a public forum takes a shoe and bangs it on a pulpit and says, we will bury you? Paul says, that's what it's like to say you can live with spiritual freedom and legal bondage in the same house. It doesn't make any sense. Now, It may seem uncharitable to use that language here. Cast out the bondwoman. But Paul is defending the gospel. And notice what he does. Who says here in this passage? It's the Bible, isn't it? It's the scripture. It's God speaking. If we go back to Genesis, that's Sarah's statement. What Paul has said is, what Sarah said was true of Hagar, Paul is saying is true today of those who would keep you in bondage to Hagar. Cast them out. This is applicable to us today. There are current controversies all around, within our denomination and without, from those who would attack the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, you must defend that. This coming from a man who bent over backwards twice in his letters to the Corinthians to keep unity. He's willing to say, listen, if it means I'll never have another hamburger again in my life, I won't. But he says, here, throw the bums out. Because they're killing you. 
there's a problem. And he concludes by saying that it is spiritual descent, not natural descent, that matters. He says, so, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. You see the irony there? He says, you Galatians, who don't have a drop of Jewish blood in you, you're Sarah's children, these people here that got a big laundry list in their closet of, I beget you, and you beget me, and we beget them, down all the way back up to Abraham, they're not her sons. Because it's spiritual generation that matters, not physical. You see, the Judaizers had forgotten there were not one, but two sons according to the flesh. Both Isaac and Ishmael. And so Paul presses this point home to indelibly link grace and freedom. Grace and freedom with inheritance. That's what he does for the Galatians. That's what he is doing for us now. He is capping a theological argument with his pastoral plea and a practical conclusion. And he calls you today in your own life, in your own heart, to cast out the bond servant. The bond servant in your heart that says, just try a bit harder and God will love you more. Cast him out. And be the son of the free woman. Be the one who inherits by grace from the promise fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have blessed us with this passage from Genesis that has been applied to us today. Lord, we ask that you would give us grace to see you in it and in every section of the scriptures. We ask that you would give us eyes to see and hearts to believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now hear this blessing from the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.